0: This is June the 20th, 2020. So we got lots of 20s. We got six twenty 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 2020. And it's a beautiful summer day here in Arizona. We are, I'm Harlan. We are in the chapter, There Is a Solution. And just to kind of review, because last week we were doing the retreat for the uh, people out in Italy, Rimini, Italy. And yesterday I had an opportunity to participate in one of their regular meetings and it was quite an quite an opportunity i'm I'm picking up little words of Italian that I never thought I would ever learn. but I guess when you immerse yourself in it uh, you 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 kind of pick things up which is which is interesting. We're in the chapter there is a solution. and if you read the title of the chapter, There's two ways to read it. There is a solution, and as we've said before, and we're going to review this morning, for thousands of years, there has been no remedy whatsoever for the alcoholic. We're going to be looking at history, and there were people we call snake oil salesmen, shysters, hucksters, crooks. And they would go from town to town and they would be uh, selling their they're, they're snake oil. When we say snake oil, what we mean is they're selling a drug that doesn't work. Most of the drug was pure whiskey itself, so how was that going to cure alcoholism? But anyway, they went from town to town and they would lie and they would say, oh, uh, Joe in, in, the, in the last town and Fred in the last town, he got sober and he's never had another drink and blah, 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 blah. Well, The bottom line is none of this was workable. And then along comes, after centuries and centuries of baloney, along comes a program and the program is free. And the program is accessible. And the program works. And here are the people right before your very eyes or write in the form of letters, or, you know, because, you know, not everybody was in Akron and not everybody was in New York. When the book came out, it went out all over. And there were people that were shouting the great news that this works. And it's free, and you don't have to buy anything, and you don't have to be who you don't want to be. It's God as you understand God, it's God as you believe him or her or it to be. And there's no requirement of religion, there's no requirement of belief in anything. You just have to be willing to believe. Willing to believe in what? Willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself which will restore you to sanity. And we've talked about this before, but we're going to talk about it a little bit again today. If the second step, and we're talking really more about the first step, if the second step had been... uh, willing to believe, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence or restore me to sobriety, there would have been a much lower ceiling on the program. But when it says, came to believe that there's a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity, sanity is much more open-ended. Sanity is much more protracted. It's much more widespread. So there is a solution. Now, I'm going to talk for just a minute here about me. The reason I don't want to include any of you in this is maybe for you, there are other methods which work for you. That is fine. And I'm not denigrating that. I'm not here to be your judge and jury. But when I read the title of this chapter and the title of the chapter is, there is a solution. For me, that means I'm emancipated from one of the duties in life that is most difficult for me. And what is that duty in life that is most difficult for me? That duty is making decisions. I always had a hard time making a decision about anything. That's why when I find something that works, I kind of stick to it. I kind of gravitate toward it because I'm not one of those out of the box thinkers. I wish I was at times. I wish I was the sort of fella that found it very easy to kind of think out of the box. I'm not that guy. So there is a solution makes it very easy for me. I don't have to ask around, say, of the A, B, C, and D method of recovery in Overeaters Anonymous, which one should I choose? I remember I'm 66 years old. About a year ago, or a little more than a year ago, I had to make some decisions regarding my health care, because I was going on a government uh, health, uh, Medicare. I was going on something that I had to make choices on my supplements. And boy, I had a hard time with that because one person tells you this, and the next person tells you the polar opposite of that, and then the next person tells you something uh, incredibly and, and undeniably different from the first two. So, what's a fella to do? What's a fella to do? So I sat down and I made a decision. It turned out to be the right one and I had a little help from one friend of mine. I listened to this person and he helped me and it was a really, really good decision. But when it says there is a solution that emancipates me from that most unpleasant of tasks, which is making a decision because I'm always gonna be the type of guy that if I chose the blue pants I'm gonna be looking over my shoulder thinking I should have chosen the red pants I should have chosen the brown pants I should have chosen the white pants whatever that may be see I can only mention white pants because it's between Memorial Day and Labor Day otherwise I couldn't mention the white pants it would be inappropriate but I can now because it's June So anyway there is a solution makes it much much easier for me and as we just covered it is a solution that works and we're talking in this chapter about the vital nature of the fellowship and that fellowship is extremely important. Now why is the fellowship so important? I want to make it very clear. A person cannot recover on fellowship alone. That is not going to happen. Believe me, I've tried it. But what's vital about the fellowship is they have a group of people that have what I want. And what is it that you have? What is it that you seem to have that I want so desperately? You have recovery from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. You are recovering from a hopeless state of mind and body and you are released from your desire. You are released from your desire to eat compulsively and you have been released happily if you've worked the steps. So if you've worked these steps, you are not only emancipated from your desire to eat, you're happy in your release. And I have to have a place where I can come and know that when I speak, you understand when you speak i understand and the reason for this is we speak and we understand the language of the heart i couldn't be honest with my friends about anything with the eating There's no way I could have done that. They would not have understood, and I became convinced of that as a 5 and a 6 and a 7-year-old because the more I tried to talk to people, the more I found that they just told me the same thing over and over again. Be they adults, be they children, be they tall, short whatever they told me don't eat so much you'll feel better use your willpower push yourself away from the table when you eat drink water before you eat and it'll kill your appetite you can have one don't eat more than one and all that stuff was just nonsense nourish kite for a person like me there was no way that I could eat one cookie one candy bar, one whatever. You can plug in all your situation. I could not just eat one. I didn't know I had a physical allergy and I didn't know I had a twist of the mind. I just knew that I loved cookies. I just knew that I loved pizza or whatever. You could plug in whatever you want. And for me, I believed my entire life that these thoughts that I had around food, these behaviors that I had around food, were secret and unique unto me. I did not know or did I believe that there were other people who thought like me, who believed like me, who behaved like me because I had never seen them. I saw other people that were heavy I saw other people that seemed to eat too much but it never occurred to me to be honest with them about what was going on and perhaps share some thoughts the only thing we knew to share were where we like to binge so I came into overeaters anonymous and I saw people some men some women and some were whatever but I never in my entire life found a group of people that could comfort me because of their honesty and because of their openness about a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and I remember very distinctly it was a Thursday night I was at Swedish Covenant Hospital in Chicago, Illinois I'm from the north side, so Swedish Covenant Hospital was right by my house. And I went there, and it was a Thursday night meeting, and the speaker's name was Della F., and she wouldn't mind me telling you that. And Della was, at that time, the mother of a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and she was a Roman Catholic housewife, and she drove a Cadillac Sedan DeVille, a brand-new, Cadillac and she used to park it in the in the area there near the hospital and I used to think to myself man if I just had a Cadillac like that man, my life would just be fantastic. And she wore very nice clothes, and she was always very, very put together. Funny thing is that 3-year-old and that 5-year-old today are both married with children older than that, and they're adults, and, and, and it's funny how time goes. But anyway, the speaker on that Thursday night was Della F., and she got up there, and she had... Uh, the microphone and there was probably 125 maybe 150 people in that room because we used to get people in Chicago from the treatment centers we had uh, we had a lot of treatment centers and in Chicago we had the Radar, Radar not Radar, Radar Institute, Dr. Radar wrote something in the Brown Book for Overeaters Anonymous and we also had in Park Ridge we had the Parkside Parkside treatment center and they would come in buses and there'd be buses outside the meetings and they would come in with their hospital plastic on and stuff like that and that's one of the big reasons that OA is so much smaller today is the insurance companies pulled the funding on the treatment centers but that's an outside issue I'm just mentioning it for the sake of the history in case you're wondering. And the speaker was Della. And Della got up and she said, I'm a housewife and blah, blah, blah. And I said to myself in my egotistical way, what the hell does this person have in common with me? She doesn't work. And she she talked about buying the same Halloween candy three and four times. And she talked about hiding food in the dirty laundry in her home so that only she knew where it was. And she talked about the fears that she had around money because she didn't work, but her husband did. And she didn't know what would happen if he found out that she was spending money to buy the same Halloween candy or the same ingredients for cakes or pies or the same food three and four and five times. And she talked about Uh, baking a pie for someone's uh, birthday and going down at 2 o'clock in the morning and eating the entire pie and having to bake yet another pie and running up more bills at the grocery store and, and paying for the same ingredients two times, three times, whatever it was. And for the very first time in my life on that freezing cold Thursday night, A bridge started construction and the bridge went from my brain, my ego to the other people in the room and little by little by little by little what happened was as I grew in program and shrank physically, my ego was reduced to the point where I could let some of this information in and that they didn't have to be 500 pounds or they didn't have to be what I thought they should be. I could listen to them. I could be informed by them and I could be comforted by them because it gave me the knowledge that I'm not alone. And the knowledge that I'm not alone is one of the great comforting pieces of information, the great, the great hammock, if you will. The reason I use the word hammock is because I love the imagery of a summer day laying in a hammock, maybe reading a book, hopefully by Bill Wilson or something about him, something like that. And it's a summer day and I've got a nice cold pitcher of ice water next to me and I'm just relaxing and that's how the fellowship feels to me and that is just a place where I can be myself and I can be honest. And that Thursday night at Swedish Covenant Hospital, that bridge that started construction little by little became a four-lane highway and today I may not know you I may not ever talk to you more than once on the phone or twice on the phone but you are me and I am you and I have many friends I'm very lucky I have friends who live here in Arizona and I have friends who are back home in Chicago that I have known my entire life. I know everything about them. I knew their grandparents. I knew their great uncles, their great aunts. I cried at the funerals. I danced at the weddings. I danced at the bar mitzvahs and I ate cake and and I ate all kinds of of appetizers at the bar mitzvahs and the weddings and everything else. I've known them my whole life. of them not just a few but you know me better than they ever will because it would be impossible for me to explain to them although I've tried a million times I've tried to explain to them why I take the phone calls why I make the phone calls why I go to meetings and why I have to still be vigilant and work my steps they just don't understand they never will, and that that's okay. I can love them. And no matter how well or how unfamiliar, how well I know you or how well I don't know you, you and I, be you male, be you female, be you black, be you white, be you green, be you yellow, be you straight, be you, be you uh, homosexual, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We are one. We are one and that we speak and we understand the language of the hearts, and we can be honest with each other as we can be with no one else until we finally get into program, obviously, and then we can be honest all around. On page 19, the top of the page, it says near the top, we feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning a much more important demonstration of our principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps today you hear a lot of things about well the principle of this step is this and the prin- that's not the original intent that's that's not something bill wilson would be familiar with when he uses the word principle he's using it interchangeably with steps because he was taught in writing school not to keep using the same word again and again and again and again so when he says principles he's talking about the steps what is he saying lies before us in our respective homes occupations and affairs what's he saying He's saying we're going to practice these principles, the steps, in all of our affairs. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. And when we read the, we feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning, we need to remember that abstinence is not the most important thing in my life without exception. It is an ingredient in the most important thing. If abstinence is the goal, then I might as well be on a diet. Because abstinence in and of itself is not going to produce a recovery. Let me say that again, because a lot of people get hung up on that. Being abstinent alone is not going to produce a recovery. It will produce a weight loss, but it will make me nuts because it's not going to deal with my anger. It's going to make it worse. It's not going to deal with fear. It's not going to feel, deal with any of it. You know how you were told as a child, don't eat so much, you'll feel better? Well, yeah, I'll feel anger better. I'll feel fear better. I'll feel jealousy better. I'll feel all these feelings much, 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 much better. And as these feelings burst to the surface inside my soul, the eating will become a step up from where I am. So the most important thing in my life without exception is to be of service, and that's all through this book. Now, can I be of service when I'm not abstinent? Not in the same sense I can't. I could drive some to a meeting if I'm eating. Yeah, I can I can do certain things if I'm eating. Yes, I agree with that. But can I be of real maximum service to God and the people about me if I'm in the food? And I resoundingly say no. No, I cannot, because I can't sponsor I can't really be of service to anybody because I'm not clear. I'm not there. I'm drunk on food. And once I get drunk on food, I'm not really a reliable source of anything except misery and and all kinds of horrible, horrible lies and manipulation and insanity. So we feel that our drinking is But at the beginning of the bottom of 19, it says, most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. That is so foreign to my nature. That is so foreign to my nature is to get up in the morning and do my 11th step and when I'm doing my 11th step in the morning what I see on an everyday basis is I see the words that I read every day and it says here on page 87 we usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems we ask especially for freedom from self-will and are careful to make no request for ourselves only we may ask for ourselves however if others will be helped we are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that it doesn't work you can easily see why that is so foreign to my nature, is to think of others before myself. Because you see, I became convinced at a very early age, I had a mentally ill mother. My mother was was mentally ill. My mother had three personalities. She could be a three-year-old, she could be a screaming, raving, lunatic, or she could be a pretty together person, but you never knew what you were gonna get or you never knew how long it was going to last. And my father was old. He was 54 when I was born. By the time I entered kindergarten, he was 59 years old, 60 years old. By the time I graduated from Mather High School in Chicago, he was 72 years of age. He was six years older than I am now when I graduated from high school. So I learned at a very early age that if I didn't go after what I wanted, no one would give it to me. And I wanted it, and I didn't get it. And I got mad at God. And I got mad at the world. And I became a jealous, petulant child. And the only thing that gave me solace, the only thing that gave me peace, was food. Food quieted the demons. And so we come upon today's start, today's reading, and we're looking at page 20. And on page 20, it says, you may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us became so very ill from drinking. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why, in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. Now, I have a very good friend who lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he and I are good friends, and he brought some statistics to me a few years ago that I found shocking. It said that the American Medical Association has estimated that people with 100 pounds to lose have less than a little less than a 2% chance of losing the weight and keeping it off. If you have 200 pounds to lose, the recovery rate is so infinitesimally small that the statistical analysis does not bear out a number that can measure the success rate. So they estimate the success rate at zero. Now, not everybody is a compulsive overeater to the point, like me, where you get very overweight. We have people on this line or people that are going to listen on the recordings that engage in other behaviors. I have a friend of mine and she's a very good friend of mine and she lives in Colorado and I have another friend of mine who lives in California and these are beautiful beautiful they look like movie stars if you see them they look like movie stars you'd never know in a million years right that there's a problem and they are anorexic they get a high from starving themselves they get a high from not eating. They get that, what Dr. Silkworth calls, they get that effect. What is the effect? The effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by not eating in their case. By starving yourself. They get a high from that. They also engage in bulimia. They, one of my friends is an exercise bulimic. She will go and run. And bike and go to the gym for five and six and seven and eight hours to burn off the food that she just ate and that means that she had all kinds of skeletal and muscular problems and all kinds of problems with joints and all kinds of pain in her life because of her exercise bulimia. Are they the same? Yes, they are. So the statistical analysis for people that engage in those behaviors is also very small. And I have another friend, and I've said this, they, the behavior is they, they, vomit their food they regurgitate deliberately so they regurgitate up their food so it doesn't matter whether the statistical analysis is for the morbidly obese or for the person who's not morbidly obese these are dumpster diving bottom of the barrel gutter compulsive overeaters. Maybe you're in their category, not mine. Maybe you're not the type of person that was significantly overweight in your life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So, we see it says here, "We have recovered." Now, the the fact that I love this story is right here in this paragraph I love this story this is one of my favorite stories I gotta tell this story and I'm very sad to report that this probably isn't going to happen this year because I think they're going to do the OA birthday on zoom I'm not a hundred percent sure but I'm about ninety percent sure I love going to the OA birthday it's in January every year Martin Luther King Junior's birthday weekend in Los Angeles and we go, I go, not we, I go, and every year there are people, and one of them is one of the people that I just got done telling you about. They love to go to the ocean, and they go out there, and they do their 11-step prayer and meditation at the Pacific Ocean. And they come back around 7 in the morning, and they clap their hands in the lobby of the hotel, and they say, What a miracle, what a miracle. The sun came up and it was beautiful. I'm not doubting that it was beautiful. I'm not doubting any of that, but the real miracles are in that hotel and they are some of them. The real miracle is that there are compulsive overeaters who are not eating compulsively and bulimics that are not purging and anorexics that are not starving And because of the steps and because of a program called Overeaters Anonymous found in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, they are not doing those things against statistical odds and they are happy in their release. That's the miracle. I'm not not denigrating the sunrise over the Pacific Ocean. I don't know if it compares to the sunrise over Lake Michigan. I'm not sure. But what I can tell you with certainty is the greatest miracle that I've ever seen And I've seen a lot of them. I saw the Cubs win the World Series, and, you know, I've seen a lot of... I saw my daughter being born. I cut the umbilical cord. They handed me a scissors. I cut the umbilical cord when my daughter was born. I've seen a lot of miracles in my life, but the greatest miracle I've ever seen is a person who was given up for dead, who is still alive and thriving and passing this information to the new person that is the miracle and it says here if you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it you may already be asking what do i have to do it is the purpose of this book to answer such questions Specifically. Now, let's take a look at that sentence. It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. Now, I want you, if you want to, you know, I'm not going to force you. I want you to go to page 45. And on page 45 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says in the middle of the page, well, that's exactly what this book is about. I'm on the second paragraph of 45. Its main object is to enable you to find a power, capitalized, he's talking about God, greater than yourself, which will solve your problem, singular. That means they say that the purpose. The main object of this book is to help me find a power, enable me to find a power that will solve my problem. Is that consistent with it is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. Remember that the book was written by people who were convinced that only a spiritual awakening or spiritual experience would drive out the compulsion to drink. Is this consistent? Yes it is. Now in the forward to the first edition forward to the very first edition and I'm looking now if you have a fourth edition I'm looking at XIII in the fourth edition this would be on XIII it says in the middle of the first paragraph it says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book so three times you can go back to page 20 now three times in the book the book will tell you what its purpose is the purpose of the book is to pass to you these steps specifically how to work them when to work them what to do, what happens if you don't, and what happens if you do. In each step, there is warnings, promises, prayer. Warnings, promises, and prayer. So you have a book that is designed to show you what we've done and to answer questions. And the main object of this book is to help is to enable me to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. Are they consistent? You bet they are. You bet they are. So this is very important information. Now before we leave this subject of why the book is written, I also want to impress upon anyone listening that is a sponsor, that it is inherent in the duties of a sponsor to impress upon the sponsee. That if that is the main object of this book, that damn well better be the main object of my life. What is the main object of my life? The main object of my life is to help me find a power greater than myself, which will enable me. <coughs> excuse me. To, the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will <coughs> help you solve Which will. <coughs> sorry. <coughs> I don't know what's. I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) The main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. That better be the main object of my life because any main object of my life is going to fall short. I want to make it so that if this is the main object of the book, it's the main object of everything that I do. It's Very important that we impress this. So many sponsors today and I don't want to be overly critical. I'm not diminishing step one. I'm not saying that step one is not important but there are so many sponsors today that are spending so much time On step one with the red light foods and the green light foods and the yellow light foods and the warning signal foods and the foods that say don't jump off a bridge or whatever. And that's fine. We have to spend time on this too, but we have to do it quickly. It doesn't have to take a long period of time. And the best way to teach it is to keep... Teaching it to others and others and others and others if you don't teach it incessantly you will not retain the information It just isn't going to happen and the purest form of teaching is Repetition purest form of teaching is in repetition, okay? We will tell you we shall tell you what we have done in other words I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you what we have done notice it's in the past tense and this is the influence of the noted psychiatrist, Dr. Howard, up in New Jersey. And through Hank Parkhurst, Dr. Howard got a copy of one of the chapters. Actually, the chapter wasn't even finished yet. It was, um, it was in mimeograph form. You could probably get, you know, you could get 50 grand for something like that today, for God's sakes. You'd get 50, 60 grand for something like that if you had a mimeograph copy. But anyway, Dr. Howard got a hold of it. and He went to Bill Wilson and he said, look, you could do what you want. It's your book. It's not my book, but I'm just going to share something with you. He says, write the book in the declarative, not the imperative. What's the difference between the declarative and the imperative? In the imperative, if you want a good example of the imperative, chapter seven is in the imperative and some of chapter eight is in the imperative too, as nine and ten. But instead of saying do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, which alcoholics are not going to respond to, we are immature, sensitive rebels. Immature, sensitive rebels, you tell a compulsive overeater or an alcoholic to go east, they're going to go west, north, or south, they're not going to go east. For some reason in our egotistical zeal to show how smart we are, you give us the right answer and we got to sh- we got to try every wrong answer imaginable before we'll come back and do the right answer. That's just part of our mishigas. That's just part of our craziness, isn't it? we 've tried every damn wrong answer imaginable haven 't we? the diets and the surgeries and the hypnotism and getting your jaws wired shut and having the urine of pregnant women shot up your butt and all this other i mean it 's just it 's just crazy Meshuggah, How many things we 've tried and the answer was here all along but it 's very important that we note how brilliant this is, how God-given brilliant this is, that Dr. Howard, is it odd or is it God, that he went to Bill and said, write it in the declarative. The declarative, these are the steps we've taken. Notice that the steps are written in past tense. Notice that this is written. These are the things we've done. Why is that? Because they knew that the alcoholic mind don't kid yourself even though we're compulsive overeaters, we have alcoholic minds we have the same mind as an alcoholic okay the alcoholic mind is an immature sensitive rebel and they have to give us examples of what others have done or they're not going to get our attention So this is key, and you know, I I don't mind spending time on one sentence, and those of you who have attended this before know we go very slow here, and I'm going to go slow here because I want to point out the importance of that sentence, we shall tell you what we have done. In your mind, try this on for size. Go in the dressing room and try this on for size. If they said, we shall tell you what to do, Try that on for size in your mind. We shall tell you what you must do, or we shall tell, however you like to phrase it. We shall tell you what you have to do. Right then and there, most of us are going to walk out. But when they say, we shall tell you what we have done, now we can watch the rest of the procedure because nobody is telling us what to do. All they're doing is showing us they demonstrate. What does it mean to demonstrate? It means to show by example. What did what did Saint Francis say? I I love Saint. I'm a Jewish boy, but I love Saint Francis, who is a Jesuit priest. I pray his prayer every morning for part of my step. Eleven is the Saint Francis prayer. I love that prayer, and I figure if it was good enough for Bill Wilson, damn it, it's good enough for me. Saint Francis said, "Preach the gospel, and if you must." use words. So we shall tell you what we have done. Very key. Very key. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. How many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. And there he is, all lit up again. You look at these sentences, and if you're me, you see your life. Well-intentioned people, some with MD at the end of their name, some with PhD at the end of their name, some with MD-PhD at the end of their name, some with all kinds of letters at the end of their name would say to me, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. Just eat half. Drink water before you eat, then you won't be as hungry. Put a picture of something on the refrigerator that you really, really want, and every time you go to the refrigerator, you'll think not to eat. Why don't you think of food as poison? Why don't you in your mind draw a picture of a skull and crossbones and put it over where it says Twinkies, or put it over where it says Kit Kat, or whatever that may be. Now, we're laughing. I can hear some of you laughing even though the lines are muted. That's funny to us because it's stupid. What it shows isn't maybe stupid isn't the right word. It's ignorant. It's ignorant. It shows that the person saying it has no concept at all whatsoever as to why we do the things we do and the mind Is looking for the effect and the mind is looking for solace because of the buildup of emotion and we have a lack of power as to know how to deal with it lack of power was our dilemma we're in pain and eating became a step up from where we were and we ate the food in search of relief from the untenable unbearable searing seething unrelenting pain of not eating and the pain of not eating is too much to bear so we ate the food in search of relief and when relief came we were happy for about nine seconds but what had we done by ingesting the food inside of us that's correct we activated the physical allergy And that physical allergy made it impossible for us to stop you see for many many years of my life people would say to me you've got to lose weight you've got to lose weight you've got to lose weight and they would say don't eat so much food and I started to believe at a very early age that food and weight were the problem and the way to attack this is to eat less food yeah eating less food is great But unless it's accompanied by a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, I am biologically predetermined to go back to the food. Because my brain cannot stand the feelings that overcome me when I'm not eating. It cannot stand it. It cannot tolerate it. We are biologically predetermined to eat or starve ourselves to death. Karen Carpenter was 34 years old. She weighed 94 pounds and died. Did she have enough money? You bet she did. She had the voice of an angel. She had released records that made it to the top. She was on TV. She was on the radio. She was played in, in, her music was played all over. Didn't save her. Mama Cass Elliot, part of the Mamas and the Pops. If you don't know who these people are, you can Google them if you're too young. Mama Cass Elliot died, London Palladium, 400 pounds. Mama Cass was a very famous singer, very famous She was on TV, and she was on the radio, and her music was played all over. And she was 400 pounds, and she died at a very young age, Jewish girl. She was a very, very uh, wonderful but wounded person, and she was wounded because of the food, very wounded because of the food. So the, the solution is not of this earth. The reason is not of this earth. There's only one solution, and that is the spiritual awakening that comes as the result of working the steps. Now, these are commonplace commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding, and we just covered that. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. I am not an alcoholic. I don't want to. I don't want to because it's not abstinent. It's got sugar and it's got all kinds of things in it that are going to lower my inhibitions and if you lower my inhibition, I'm probably going to make chicken an endangered species or I'm going to make cows an endangered species, but I could drink a half a beer every month or every year and no more and it would I wouldn't need any discipline I wouldn't need any program I wouldn't need meetings I wouldn't need a book I wouldn't need steps I'm not an alcoholic so I don't understand why people can't just drink a half a beer and leave the rest alone I don't get it but I know enough to realize that that thinking that it doesn't apply to the alcoholic It doesn't apply to the alcoholic Uh, about uh, two years ago June 5th of 2017 2018 excuse me 2018 I had the second of my knee replacements in June of 2018 I had my knee replaced it was I've had two hips replaced and I've had two knees replaced I wish they had a brain replacement I'd sign up tomorrow But anyway, I came home and I had a bunch of hydrocordone and I had a bunch of uh, tramadol and I had a bunch of Percocet and I had a bunch of stuff that was prescribed to me by the surgeon and the doctors and the physician's assistant. As you move through the process of getting better, they change your pain meds. But when you first come home, you're on hydrocordone. You're on very strong painkillers. I mean, they just replaced my knee for crying out loud about the first of this year about the first of this year, I found a bottle of hydrocordone and I threw it out, not a whole bottle, a half a bottle, and I threw it out. And the reason that I threw it out is I have no intention of taking it. I use half of them. And then when I started to progress, and my physical therapy was progressing and things were moving along. They switched me to Tramadol. I started taking Tramadol. I didn't take the Hydrocordone. And then they switched me to Percocet or whatever they switched me to. I don't remember exactly the order, but I think I have it right. I think I have it right. But anyway, I didn't take them because I didn't need them and it never occurred to me. This is the key, listen to this. It never occurred to me To take those pills just for recreation it never occurred to me that there would be some sort of relief by taking them from the pain of anger the pain of fear the pain of jealousy the pain of whatever it never occurred to me never crossed my mind now if they would have said when I came out of surgery, here is a prescription for um, Little Debbie cake or Sara Lee brownies or Chips Ahoy cookies or Oreos. Now you got my attention. I would have wolfed down those Oreos so fast, why? Because I have a compulsive overeater brain and a compulsive overeater body. And so the people that are saying these things to us are not stupid. The things they're saying seem stupid, but they're really just ignorant. And what they're doing is what most people do. They are using their, their reactions and projecting them onto us. We don't react the way they do. The idea that somehow, someday, we will be like them has to be smashed. They are not like us and we are not like them. I could say that to you all day long. I call you up at home and say, hey, you're not like them and they're not like you. I could do that around the clock and you will go out and eat God knows what because you are going to consider that they are like you and you are like them. How do you differentiate between you and them? You teach this to others incessantly. These reactions, lay off the hard stuff, try beer and wine, it's just, it's it's by people who do not react like us. So why am I going through a whole gesticulation to point that out? The reason is this, ladies and gentlemen, because now we have a place to go where such stupidities will not be repeated. Because we have a fellowship of people, men and women who are like us we can reach out to them and they will not say things like that because they understand they just know and they're not going to say those dumb things and those dumb things made us eat even more if you're anything like me so thank God for the fellowship thank God for those who speak And understand the language of the heart for you are truly God's miracles and God's messengers of comfort to people like me who have suffered the humiliation the degradation and the wasted decades of my life and that I've known loneliness as few do and I've known degradation as few do And I have been dragged through the muck of this disease, and you were there to comfort me. When God can't come, he sends people, and in many cases, he sends you. That's a very, very important thing, and most people don't have that. There's most people do not have that. They feel alone and alienated, and we have a place to go. Certainly, there are responsibilities that we have, and the responsibility that we have is to be that outstretched hand of Overeaters Anonymous to, who urgently seek this program. We are charged with that job. We are charged with the job to work the program to a sufficient level to effect a spiritual awakening and then immediately pass it to someone else. Let's continue. Moderate drinkers have little trouble excuse me, in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. And I've been that level of eater from the time I was a toddler when I was in diapers. There was never enough food. There was never enough food. I've said this on this line many times. I have vivid memories vivid memories of people screaming and yelling at my mother and screaming and yelling at my father about how much food I was eating and what was going on with my eating and why was I getting so fat and why were they allowing me to eat so much food and why were they doing that? Well, my mother and father didn't really have any explanation at all they were compulsive overeaters. they were sick and suffering too and they were just doing the best they could to love me and the best way to love me was with an almond joy bar here is the fellow page 21 here is the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously anti social. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment. Isn't that the truth, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept? Let's stop there and let's, let's ponder this for just a minute because I've given you a lot here in this paragraph. The first thing I want to point out is the absolute absurdity in our personalities, how different we are when we're under the spell of the food or under the spell of the strong desire to food and and when we're not. So we have a person who's doing absurd, incredible, tragic things while eating, drinking, whatever that may be. It's just a shame that we do that to ourselves. Now let's also take another little part of this paragraph that is not really spoken about by sponsors. It's not spoken about in meetings, but I'm gonna give you a little background on something that not a lot of sources are gonna give you. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was written by Robert Louis Stevenson. And Robert Louis Stevenson was an author of children's books. And he wrote a book about a man who drank a potion, drank a liquid, And when drinking this liquid, it made him into a womanizing monster. It made him into a womanizing, abusive monster. And when his wife found the original manuscript, or most of it, she found the manuscript of what he had been working on, she burned it. She threw it into the fire and asked her husband in a very angry tone, Robert, what on earth would would possess you to write a book like this? And he honestly at the time didn't know where he got the idea. But let's scratch the surface and let's go into a little history here. Robert Louis Stevenson's father was an alcoholic. When he drank liquor, he beat his wife. When he drank liquor, he cheated on his wife. When he drank liquor, he became a monster. No wonder indeed that his son, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a book about a man who drank a potion and became a monster. Where did he get such an idea? by opening his eyes during his childhood and watching dad get drunk and beat his wife. Where indeed. So let's continue and say his disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature but little. Once you put some candy in my system and you've triggered that physical allergy, I'm not really there. You could ask me what day it is. I might tell you Saturday, but I'm thinking about Chips Ahoy. I'm thinking about Oreos and ice cream. I'm not thinking about you or your little problems. I couldn't care less if you lived or died. You know there's a song, Get Me to the Church on Time? Well, I could write a song, Get Me to the Grocery Store on Time. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world. Let him drink for a day. He frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight drunk at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. Why is that? What happens when a particularly important decision must be made or an engagement kept? This is the second time they've used that metaphor. The first time is in the doctor's opinion because when a decision has to be made or an engagement kept, what is that going to accelerate? It's going to accelerate the build-up of normal human emotion. The fear, the anger, the uncertainty, All these emotions start to build as we start to doubt, based on our basic instincts of life, if we're going to get what we want, if we're going to be able to provide what we want for our families, are they going to take something away from us that we don't want to give up? Are we not going to get our way in the future? These are the things that start building up. And once they start building up, these emotions will pinball around and start to accelerate. And as they do, we're going to eat because the buildup of human emotions is too painful for us. We cannot stand it any longer. We cannot take it any longer. And eating becomes a step up from where we are that's so important he is often perfectly sensible and well balanced concerning everything except liquor but in that respect he is incredibly dishonest and selfish did you eat that no where did that money go I don't know you give me any type of disease behavior and the very first thing that's going to go out the window is the truth the first victim of compulsive behavior eating gambling sex addiction love addiction alcoholism drug addiction it doesn't matter what the addiction is the first casualty of addiction is the truth he often possesses special abilities skills and aptitudes he has a promising career ahead of him most of us have had wonderful potential some of us have achieved a great deal a great deal but one thing we can't do we can't control the amount we eat once we start and we cannot keep from eating now that we want to because of the mental twist and the physical allergy. (laughs) He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. Bill Wilson was that person He did a lot of good things. Remember I told you the story in Bill's story about how in 1932 these guys wanted to form a group to buy stocks? They were at a low point. They were from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I told this story a few weeks ago. And they came to Bill and they said, can you put this together for us? And he said, sure, I'd love to. And they were in the hotel room. And a guy brought along a bottle of whiskey cuz this is in the bottle uh, this is in the days of prohibition you could you know you couldn't buy liquor so this is homemade stuff and he says this is Jersey lightning i made this myself you can have one drink what caused bill to take that one drink was the mental twist what caused bill to take so many drinks that he couldn't leave that hotel room for 3 days the physical allergy and that once he triggered that physical allergy, he could not stop. And so we see that he's bringing this down on his head. And once again, he has to go home to Lois and say to Lois, I have gotten drunk again, and there will be no money, and there will be no nothing, no deal, no, nothing. Do you know how embarrassing that was for Bill Wilson? And yet that's exactly what he had to do. Remember we read in Bill's story how he finally found a job and lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver? Can you imagine how embarrassing that had to be for Bill Wilson? Here he is. He was the prince, one of the princes of Wall Street, and the cab driver beat him up because he couldn't pay the fare. He couldn't pay his fare. That's what happened. He ordered the cab, and the cab pulls up in front of 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn, New York, and Bill has no money to pay the fare. He had money for the liquor. He had money for the bar, but he didn't have money for the cab. So the cab driver beat the, beat the crap out of him. And then when they got wind of it at this job that he was supposed to start, they said to him, we've changed our minds. You're, we're not hiring you. Can you imagine how embarrassing that had to be for Bill Wilson? Can you imagine how horrible that had to be? Bottom of 21 he is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around yet early next morning he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before if he can afford it he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe I have memories when I was a kid I wasn't I wasn't exactly a schwer arbiter a Schwer arbiter is a hard worker it wasn't exactly from a long line of schwer Arbiters, but when it snowed outside, we used to make money shoveling snow for some of the neighbors, and one of the neighbors gave me like $20, and I, I took the $20, and I bought a bunch of, a bunch of, um, of uh, candy, candy, and I had this candy under the bed. And it was one of the most secure feelings I've ever had before or since, knowing that my candy was underneath the bed, knowing that my candy was there. Of course, I couldn't leave the candy alone, so in a very short period of time, the candy was gone. It wasn't under the bed anymore, it was inside my stomach. So, but it really gave me a feeling of security and confidence knowing that it was there. As matters grow worse, I'm on page 22, the top. He begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative <clears throat> excuse me, and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. And this is the spiral of the disease. This is when you say he's circling the drain. What does circling the drain mean? He's not functioning, he can't walk, he or she can't get out of a chair, or they're so thin they they look like they just got out of a concentration camp if they're the anorexic side and they're getting worse and they're continuing the behavior this is when we say he is circling the drain and we 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 want to try to get people into recovery before that can they get into recovery at that point yes they can yes there's there's always hope but a lot of times they go to a point where they want to die and they don't want to hear anything about recovery. This is a vicious illness. It doesn't care who it kills. It doesn't care what it takes from you. It doesn't care how it has to humiliate you or degradate you. This is a very vicious disease, and this disease does not have any Rahmanis. What's rahmanus? Rahmanus is a Yiddish word for mercy. It has no Rahmanus on you. It doesn't care that there's people who love you. It doesn't care that there are people who will cry their eyes out if something happens to you. You could be a mother. You could be a father. You could be a daughter. You could be a son. You could be a brother or a sister. You could be a cherished friend. You could be a cherished wife or husband. Whatever it is you are, it doesn't matter. This disease will take you out. And it doesn't care what it does to you on the way out. And in, in uh, compulsive overeating, it's a little different most of the time than alcoholism. Alcoholism, sometimes they, they just die because they drive into a tree or they something, whatever. Uh, it's horrible. It's just a horrible thing. Alcoholism kind of tackles you from behind. But compulsive overeating is like, it's like being kicked to death by a bunny rabbit. That's really what it's like it's like getting kicked to death by a bunny rabbit the progression of the disease the horrible consequences of the disease are there but they are slower to develop you know you see a lot of drug addicts and you see a lot of alcoholics coming in when they're 14 and 15 and 16 years old in our OA in our program, it's very, very rare to see a person that young coming in, and if they do come in, even at that age, and they're coming to meetings and stuff, they usually don't stick around because the severity of the disease is just not real to them they know they're young and they know they'll be okay even though they're not going to be they're not going to be and you see this every day in the increased level of morbid obesity in children which is a real crime which is a real crime okay then comes the day he simply cannot make it, I'm at the top of 22, gets drunk all over again, perhaps he goes to a doctor, oh, he read that already, I'm sorry, then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanatoriums. This will be the last paragraph we'll cover today. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. Now, once again, I'm on the obese compulsive overeater side of this. I am on the much too fat uh, side of this. There are those of you who are anorexics. There are those of you who are bulimic. There are those of you who are both or you may be a combination of all three. It doesn't matter. What does matter is That you have a disease you have a twist of the mind and you have an allergy of the body and only a spiritual awakening will help you once again there's no earthly explanation as to why you have this there is no earthly solution to what you have what you've been afflicted with There is nothing that can be done for you that is of this earth. We must stop looking for it and we must, or it'll kill us, resign ourselves. We must resign ourselves to the idea that we are permanently different from others and that in order to recover, we're going to have to work these steps and work them quickly, not slowly, quickly like our hairs on fire, and we work them as the top priority of our life. Now, I hope this was helpful today. I hope that in this chapter you're getting something of a of a uh, reverence for the fellowship. You cannot recover on fellowship alone, but fellowship is certainly one of the joyous spots of my life. I love so many of you, and the ones I don't love, it's because I may not know you. But the bottom line is, you are all my teacher. You are all my savior. You are all my knights in shining armor. And without you, I'm screwed. Because if I believe for a minute that these ideas that I have in my head, these thoughts that I have about food, And these behaviors that I exhibit around food, once I believe that they are unique and secret unto me, I am in trouble. And in your recovery, you become an instant and effective beacon of hope that if God can do this in your life, then I can recover as well. So let's close today. We will pick it up next week. Same time, same bat time, same bat channel, next Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, unmute, or I'll make it so you Okay, you can now unmute yourself. I'm also going to stop the recording, not because this is not good to record, but I'm thinking of it, and sometimes if I don't think of it, you know, I'm not getting any younger here. I. I-